You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Welcome to the Hunt of War podcast, powered by Sportsman's Nation, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 97, Chasing Everything with Dan Matthews. On this episode of Huntivore, Nick is joined by fellow Sportsman's Nation podcaster, Dan Matthews. Dan is the host of the Nomadic Sportsman and Western Rookies. Together, Nick and Dan talk about chasing everything. Rather than casting a deep net into one species, Dan casts a wide net to explore as many outdoor opportunities as possible. They cover hogs from a helicopter, why meat is so important in his household, and how Mountain Goat might not be on the top of Dan's list to chase. This and much more on this episode of Huntable. All right. Well, hey, folks. Beautiful evening in Michigan. If you, uh, if you enjoy having all four seasons in one day, we started today with snowflakes. Middle of the day, we had some sunshine, and now we're back to a rain and so it's, I don't know, it's just nice to, to get everything all in one day. So my guess is I'm going to probably have a cold tomorrow just because of being outside at recess with all the kids. And man, finally coming in, being able to warm up, had a good meal. Uh, yeah, it's, it was a good day. It was a good day. But anyway, we're going to finish out our evening tonight talking with not just a single podcaster, but this is a two-show podcaster, folks. He is a fellow formerly known as Sportsman's Nation podcaster. I'm not even sure what we're called now, but I am here with Dan Matthews of the Nomadic Outdoorsman and Western Rookies podcasts. Dan, thank you so much for giving up uh, an hour of your evening tonight. Absolutely. I I always love uh, being invited on other shows. It's still kind of hits me funny when people are like hey we want you on our show and i'm like me why why me <laughs> but yeah thanks for having me you bet you bet 
I, anybody that is on Sportsman's Empire is what I've now seen it cause. We have yet to get the final word from Dan the Man, as in the nine fingers, to let us know what we're actually called now. Um, but, yeah, anytime I get someone on, like, I feel like it's it's almost like a little family meeting. Like, you know, I get, I get yeah. to talk with a brother who's just so excited about being in the outdoors, being uh, in and amongst nature, pursuing the sports and have, have well, the hobbies that we absolutely love and have a passion for. Um, you yourself ha- hail from southwest Missouri. Am I? You just told me that a little bit ago, correct? Yeah, that's right. I've been living down here um, since about 2007. I took two years out in Colorado, but was born and raised in Wisconsin. And um, yeah, I've been down in Missouri for a while. Uh, we're definitely kind of calling this home base now. There you go. Finally getting settled in, put some roots down. Yeah. What do you What do you do during your day job there, Dan? What's uh, What's your nine to five? Man, my nine to five. It's weird again to say, but is podcasting and social media. So TikToking, Instagram. Gosh, the fact that I say I don't ever call myself an influencer. Let's just say <laughs> that I just feel like that's so weird. And um, yeah, but doing really stupid TikTok videos that every hunter can relate to. Um, and then also recording and editing podcasts. Uh, that is, that's it for me. Wow. Wow. So you've just gone two feet in, uh, to our, what our, what our hobby is your hobby or our hobby is your profession. Um, I will say that, you know, you're on that like first or second step of acceptance, being yeah. an influencer, I had a good year where I had to really realize, you know what, Nick, you are a hipster. You are wearing <laughs> fitted jeans and flannel. Now I do. I've worn flannel before; it was cool. But it's as soon as you say that statement, like, oh dang, I'm a hipster. Shoot. Yeah, but <laughs> but do you know how to work a chainsaw, or could you split wood with an axe or a maul? Is that the prerequisite? Because I feel I've like got that can... criteria. You can dress like a lumberjack all you want, and it's only hipster if you can't also play the part. So <laughs> if you know how to fell a tree or if you even know that you should say fell instead of cut down, like you're probably in the right on the right path. Well, good. I'm, I'm a lumberjack, and I feel okay. So we're, Perfect. We've got that covered. So, yeah, no, I wanted to have you on just because, yeah, you're, you're exploding with the nomadic no, uh, outdoorsmen, um, really, you've been all over social media and TikTok. That has been fun to watch you and your wife just basically fill up uh, the social medias with hunting criteria and stuff we can all relate to. I know I've had several. I just shoot over to my wife. It's like it's a neat dynamic to have as someone who's in the outdoors. My wife loves the idea of me bringing home uh, a deer or bringing home fish or bringing home small game like she's all about that she loves the food aspect but she's also like man your ROI is just on the bottom end like she's like I want you to produce and I want it fast and it's just it's been it's been a dynamic to kind of play with that like babe it's not every time you come back with you know exactly what you were looking for oh yeah no I know that feeling for sure my wife um will actually comment on other people's hunting TikToks if it's relatable in the moment. Like this morning, um, there's a guy named Hunter Cleveland, and he's super funny. I think he's from Alabama, and he he had a tick 
TikTok that said like, are hunt or are turkeys even real? Like, are there such a thing as turkeys? And she messaged him and she's like, you have no idea. I ask myself that every time Dan goes turkey hunting and doesn't come back with one. So I'm like, oh, good. Now you're just throwing me under the bus uh, to all my hunting TikTok buddies. Uh, humble. Humble is the way of that the pride dies. So, no, I think yeah. that's going to be good for you, though. You know, because then now I think you're going to work harder for the next one. When you do come across a bird, I guarantee that bead is going to be hard on, that snog- on its noggin. You'll drop it for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't play games. Once it's in front of me, it's the matter of getting it in front of me. I feel like anybody can hit something, um, but to get a turkey in front of me, man, I'm just, I might be the world's worst turkey hunter or the luckiest turkey hunter because I make it happen eventually, but it's just not, not good, the whole process. So, well, I, I'd like to say I can relate, but, um, I don't know. Turkeys are just easy for me, but it's a completely different breed. It's the full domestic that I got. In fact, I'm I'm donning the merch right now. Yes. The family farm. I I man, I enjoy a great piece of dark meat off a turkey. I enjoy oh, just a, a breast or a cutlet. And I do. I take it for granted that as I'm as I'm talking to guys, I'm like, well, you know, you can take your breast and your dark meat and you can grind them together to make turkey burger and they look at you like how dare you would say that <laughs> i only get you know here in michigan i think you get two birds total that's it yeah you get two birds and they're like how dare you put that to the grinder and i'm like oh yeah that's right they don't you're not working with as much uh poundage here you get only your two specialties and you want to do everything special with each piece that you can get your hands on yeah i i feel like the more rare the more coveted the bird, the animal is like so. What you're saying, you can only get two. Like that meat is a prized possession, but that doesn't always translate into better meat. You know what I mean? Like I love turkey, I really do. Some people don't like the taste of wild turkey, and I don't understand that. I think it's amazing, but when yeah, I feel like people need to just understand. Hey, make whatever you like. It doesn't matter. You'll there's more birds out there next year. Here in Missouri, we're actually fortunate. We get two in the spring, and I think we get two, maybe up to three in the fall. So, and at that point, you can shoot hens. Uh, okay. I've never shot a hen, and I've never eaten a hen. So I'm not a hundred percent sure if there's a flavor difference, but uh, w- they're not as rare down here. I mean, they just kind of open season on them. Well, good. You can take full advantage of that. Well, then, yeah, we're going to have to check back then in this fall, and I want a full synopsis on Tom versus Hen. We'll, we'll yeah, get maybe that I'll shoot in. I'll just wait till two come in together. I'll shoot them both, <laughs> and then I know. I mean, it's like same day, same time. Everything's exactly the same. No variables other than gender. Because that's how it all works out. <laughs> yeah, every time. Yeah, every time. Um. Well, Dan, like you, we're just we're talking about turkeys right now, but you seem to be able to chase, or you you have the desire to chase everything that's been been put in front of you. I was trying to put this question together. I'm like, well, what what do you chase? And I thought, well, maybe it's an easier question to ask. Rather, like, what haven't you chased? Being someone who's just full do- who has dove fully into the hunting lifestyle, what is it like being someone who's constantly like the next season's coming up being that generalist and chasing everything is it is it one of those is it like a 
it's almost like being on tour, I guess. If if you're a rock star or whatever, it's like, hey, we're we're in this city this week, and we got this next show coming up. What's it like just chasing stuff 365? Man, it's awesome. I I've really come to respect a lot of different types of outdoor activities, things that I never thought I'd get into. I mean, really, growing up in Wisconsin, I thought, you know, like I want to hunt deer, and that's what my family did, and so that's what I started doing. And for a lot of years, that was it. Like, that's all we did. And my uncle got me into waterfowl hunting. And I was like, this is amazing. How did I not know about this? And then it was squirrel and other small game. And so uh, once I moved down to Missouri for college, I started getting into all sorts of things like frog gigging. Um, I don't know if you guys do much of that in Michigan, but I thought it was like the old snipe hunting deal, right? Where it's like, oh, yeah, I go hold on to a plastic garbage bag in the woods and you make this call. And when you feel something in the bag, you tie it up. And, um, anyways, we went frog gigging and we caught a bunch of frogs and my buddy was like, Hey, now we're going to like, we just had a fire. We didn't deep fry them. We didn't batter them. Nothing. We just pulled the pants off, so to speak. And then we cooked them over the fire and I I was waiting for him to be like, all right, man, tell me what you think. Like, haha, you know, Never happened. I looked over and he's like diving into his second set of frog legs. He's just mowing down. I was down like, wait, this him. is real. You guys actually do this and eat this. And sure enough, we ate them and they were amazing. And so I feel like with each new thing, my desire to learn more outdoor activities and experience new outdoor hobbies just continued to grow to the point where now I get invited to different places. Like I got invited to Florida to iguana and python hunt. Didn't know that was really a thing, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, but I, I want to just try a little bit of everything. And some of the stuff, it's like, man, I want to do it for the meat like I really do. Uh, Sandhill Crane, one of the things I haven't done, I've heard it's amazing. I really want to shoot a mountain lion, heard the meat's amazing. I also think the adventure on those would be cool. And then other things, I'm just like, dude, I want to go kill iguanas and pythons. Like I know they're invasive and they're an issue and I'll totally come help clean up. And I've heard iguana actually tastes really good. So, um, yeah, all that to say, chasing after new outdoor adventures has become like my drug of choice. You know, some people are diehard whitetail. Some people are diehard waterfowl and I'm finding myself carrying not less about each one, but hold like holding that as the ultimate less and less. Now I'm just like excited for what's around the corner. I love that explanation they had that it's like, Hey, if, if you've gone full in on whitetail and you're a whitetailer, like that great for you, that's, that's incredible. But the, the scope at which you're able to see just different habitats, different sections of, our amazing habitats that we have here in the United States. Like you've been able to just go all over and like now get the opportunity to chase after invasives like iguana and uh, Python. That's just something I would never think to, that would even be able to chase. Like you said, like I didn't know they were a problem. I knew there was big (laughs) snakes, but at the same time, like, Oh man, you can chase after them. You can trap them. You can, you know, end up enjoying them later. Like that's, that is super super cool. I, I, I guess I'm more of that homebody aspect where it's like, I want to chase what's within my hundred miles. It's like that. 
I want to take what I have in my local area, that locavore mindset. But at the same time, like you've you've kind of, you know, as I'm listening to several of your episodes, like you've kind of like peeked open that lid to be like, well, if you go out past 100 miles, you get to chase something completely different and something completely new that, you know, you don't you don't know what is the ultimate unless you haven't tried all of them. So I love your approach that you're taking on that. Yeah, it's been it's been fun. It's definitely been a journey and a learning process. And there's things that I never thought I'd be super into that I absolutely love and look forward to now. And um, I've kind of expanded instead of the hundred mile deal. I say the United States for sure, North America as a whole. Um, really, I just there's so many things to hunt and fish for here that like I could fill. 20 lifetimes with it and never experience all of it and it used to be like man i want to go to to new zealand and shoot a red stag i want to go to africa and see what that's all about but in all like there's plenty of things like that on my bucket list but right now i'm focused on the u.s and north america and we'll see how many i can cross off by the time my time on earth is done so nice this will be more of a uh, I don't know, maybe a strategy question. As someone who chases a lot of things and knowing that out out past the Mississippi uh, in the West, lottery systems are a big part of how tags are divvied up. There are plenty of over-the-counter stuff that you can get on, but even some of that's still all like lottery. How are you approaching that game? Are you putting in? in a lot of different states are you going for high percentage or is it are you staying in the realm of i want to get in fast get in quick because my time is super valuable that i'd rather just go the -the over-the-counter route and then move on to the next thing you know there's only one state that i've put in for that i haven't got over the counter for first and that is maine for moose I've got a buddy up there who he's like, dude, if you, if you draw a tag, I will find you a big moose and we will go like, we'll go after it. And so I was like, Oh, all right, sweet. Um, every other state, I feel like I've gotten an over the counter tag before I started putting in for everything else, because there's so many opportunities and really that's what the Western rookie is all about is trying to, uh, familiarize people with the opportunities that they have to chase after animals out West. Um, it, it seems foreign. It seems like, man, I've got to have $10,000 to go and chase a big bull elk with my bow. In reality, you know, the tags are under 700 bucks. Uh, if you, if you really do it right, you can do the full trip for right around a thousand dollars. And there's just so many cool opportunities. Whereas if you put in every year, if you're putting in for preference points, you might be waiting in that lottery for 20 years before you get a tag. And don't get me wrong, I still do some of that, things that I have to do it for. But I go out to Colorado every year on an over-the-counter tag. And the first two years I did it, I I got a bull each year. The second year I got a bull and a mule deer buck on the same day. And I'm like, there's so many things like that all over the country, even, even up to Alaska. There's tags you can just buy over-the-counter for pretty cheap in Alaska. Blacktail deer, on Kodiak Island, 350 bucks. Like it's so doable and affordable. If you give up every other day 
getting Starbucks and you make your own coffee. You know, like there's plenty of things that people can do in order to go about it where you don't have to wait 20 years to go and do this hunt of a lifetime. That's great. That's great. At that point, I think, too, it's like your full investment into the experience as opposed to inches at that point. Oh, yeah. At the same time, there's trophy animals in these general ta- or general areas. You just got to be able to, in my mind, you just have to be smarter than the average bear. You got to be smarter than the bull, and you got to be smarter than all the pressure that's been put on them. Not to say that I I can say that because I have zero experience in all of that, but just in chasing, you know, whitetails, like there's times where I've seen the biggest deer of my life and it happened because somebody kicked him up and I happened to be in there before that guy. So it was like that's I guess that's how I I see I I've dumbed the world down into my little forty acre plot, but at the same time the same rules apply on that forty acres as it does on the on the rest of the planet. Oh yeah, absolutely. And anytime you travel, um, I find myself caring less and less about the size of the antlers or what the Boone and Crockett score is going to be on it. Um, when I go to a new place, it's, it's an entire experience for me. And you know, there's certain places where if there's like management, uh, if there's wildlife management in place where it's like, Hey, you know, typically people want to shoot this or bigger, like, I'm going to jump on board with that. I'm a newcomer. I'm not going to come in and, you know, shoot all the smallest animals just because I can if if the consens- the general consensus is, you know, we're shooting this size or bigger. But um, the experience alone is trophy enough for me. I tell people, even if I don't come back with any animal, like if I go to Alaska and spend a week on Kodiak Island and I don't catch a fish or shoot a deer, it is going to be one of the greatest vacations of my life anyways. And so having deer, having fresh salmon, having a halibut, like that's all bonus. And don't get me wrong. I'm going to eat good while I'm there too. You know, if I'm catching or shooting that stuff. Um, uh, but yeah, the, I, I look at every trip almost as a vacation where I can go unwind, relax, also rebuild myself being out in creation. And then, Come back with meat, hopefully. Tagging on along with experience, what a hell of an experience that you had flying in a helicopter (laughs) and shooting at hogs with a semi-automatic rifle. I mean, holy smokes. Please tell me that the pilot was pumping Flight of the Valkyries into your oh my gosh we we joked and joked all week long about the different music that he could play through the headphones and i'm like dude i i feel like no matter what is coming through the headphones typically it's his instruction like hey pigs on the left coyotes on the right whatever um in your mind you just have background music going all the time like you it is such a rush it is you feel like you're in a movie i don't even know how to describe it because you're also so caught up in the moment that you can't fully comprehend what you're doing i mean like you're leaning out of a helicopter shooting at live animals and it's all for the betterment of the habitat and the state of texas i mean really anywhere you do it i don't know what other states allow you to it seems like you can do almost anything you want in texas but um yeah just it's hard to take it all in it really is and then afterwards you're immediately like wait it's over are you serious? Like, 
did I just do that? What just happened? I, I can only imagine. My dad is a flight instructor uh, for single-engine planes. So having an experience in a single prop, you know, I got tip tanks on it. It, it seats four people, and I mean like four like small people. I'm a short guy, and I fit in there just fine, but anybody taller than uh, 5'10 is going to struggle to be inside this little cockpit. But being able to look out the windows and just like, yes, like you were describing, perspective is just off and on. And if I look up at the gyroscope, like I think we're flying level, but, man, we've got a 15-degree lean because of the wind, and it's like I never even noticed that. So now you are hanging out the side of a vertical takeoff aircraft, You've got a whirlwind above you, and now you're shooting a semi-automatic out the door of this. Talk to me a little bit about about the platform that you were using, like the firearm, the optic that was on there, and how were you instructed to try and lead this animal or even to put a bullet on him? So the amazing thing is um, the the guys that I went with, Rogue Texan Outfitters, they're phenomenal dudes. They're just like everyday guys. I mean, they just have cooler toys than most of us do. And so uh, we I got to hang out there with them for several days. Um, they, they've got kind of a partnership, I want to say, with American Resistance uh, Gear, and it's an AR platform shooting 5.56 five, or 2.23, um, they've actually got their own model or own line of rifles through them. And so it's stamped with their, uh, with their logo and their name on it. And then on top of it was a Trigicon MRO red dot site. And that's what they're shooting. They're shooting cans on them. So they're suppressed to top it all. Because I mean, if you're shooting might as well animals out of a helicopter, you might as well have a rocket launcher <laughs> and thermals and suppress and everything. No, um, so it was suppressed and really it, I didn't, I didn't know exactly what to expect. I watched all the videos. It did not prepare me for it. And, uh, we got up there and so me and my buddy Cody, we, we were flying at the same time and we were both on what would be the driver's side of a vehicle. Um, so he was in the front driver's seat. I was in the rear driver's side, uh, and the pilot was in the front passenger seat on a vehicle. So he's on the right. So everything we're shooting is out of the left window. There's no like moving back and forth. Um, and in fact, typically we weren't flying forward at all. We were like Tokyo drifting sideways the whole time. So like as we're looking out of the window, straight out of the driver's side, um, we're like flying straight towards the pigs, completely sideways. And... And he's like, hey, here we go. Get on him. And that first, like, safety flip was like, I'm doing this. Okay, okay. And I started shooting, and I was leading them so far. And he's like, dude, aim for the nose. And I'm like, really? Like, they are, they're booking it. Like, as fast as you can ever imagine a pig running or a coyote running, because we shot several of those also. That's how, I mean, I'm thinking, dude, I got to lead these things 10 feet but he's such a good pilot that he's flying at the same speed as them. So by the time the bullet leaves the gun, it's already traveling that direction at the same speed as the animal, but you still have that slight lag from the time it leaves the barrel to the time it connects. And so 
you aim at the nose and you're going to hit them in the head or in the back or in the lungs or, you know, a, a pretty fatal shot. And so that took me a while. I kept leading because I'm used to throwing a football. I'm used to throwing a Frisbee. I'm used to playing sports. And so, and I'm used to shooting ducks. Like you, you got to lead a duck, you know, especially during teal season. So I was just going to say those little teals, man, they are screaming. Oh yeah. And so that's what I was used to. And that's, that took a long time to figure out. But then once I did, oh my gosh, that changed, that changed everything. And and he told me, he's like, dude, you really got to do like a couple full days worth of this. And then you'll be connecting like every other, every third, every fifth shot. Where at the beginning, the first thing we saw was a coyote. And I bet you between Cody and I, we shot 40 times at it before we actually connected. And you could see, I mean, we're like five feet in front of its face every time. Um, but yeah, the once you get the hang of it, it, it seems pretty easy after that. What is the recovery like on these animals? I guess maybe that's a loaded question. Is there a recovery time, or is this merely we're out there to save habitat? We're not out there to uh, pick up these pigs after after it's done. We need them off the landscape. Or is there a moment where you come back later with uh, the side-by-side and pick up your, your trophies then? You know, the the landscape doesn't really, in a lot of cases, doesn't offer a recovery opportunity. Uh, I say that, you know, we did we did bring pigs back and we cooked them up. Uh, it wasn't Cody and I, but uh, some of the other guys, they ended up doing that. Um, the, the terrain that they're in, I mean, it's not like big cropland, at least where we were. It's not like open. There's a ton of underbrush. There's a ton of like deep ravines and quick elevation changes. Um, but really at the end of the day, it's eradication. They want to get rid of it as many as possible. And that was foreign to me. You know, there's not many things that I eat or I mean that I shoot that don't go in my freezer. Uh, typically if I shoot it, it's coming home with me and I'm doing something with it. Uh, with the pigs, hearing the numbers that, that these guys are shooting every year and they're like, that's just to kind of keep the population in check. It's not like decreasing the population at all. It's just slowing the just growth keeping of it. it baseline. And I'm like, man, that is so odd because you know, everybody around there just hates these animals. They do billions of dollars in, in destruction every year. Uh, not even counting the, the vehicle encounters, you know, he was showing me strips where it looked like he took a 16-foot-wide plow and just plowed for 200 yards through the field, and it was all pigs. And he's like, you could do that on every single property. And so, I mean, they they partner with a lot of farmers, and, you know, it, it's kind of a I scratch your back, you scratch mine type of thing. Like, they've got business. They enjoy it. They enjoy helping people enjoy it and uh the farmers benefit from having a few less pigs but they were telling us they're like we could clean up every pig on a property unless we clean up the pigs on the neighboring properties also that one's going to be overrun with hundreds of pigs within the year and they're like and then you just have to think about that like as soon as you hit one now you've got four around it that you have to hit and then four around each of those and it's just it's a never-ending battle for them and they've kind of come to terms with the idea that they're never gonna wipe out pigs but they're gonna do their best to keep them from 
doing any more damage. Yeah, to come to be a point where it's now it's not a, a crisis anymore, something we need to deal with. It's that it's already been done. There's nothing we can do about it. And it, it's funny. It plays on your it it plays on your ethics as yeah. one who has not experienced anything like this in Texas to see that and to be like, I don't, I don't know if I I don't know if that is a good gut check for me being in a helicopter shooting at pigs, but my only experience is is whitetails up here or, you know, farm pigeons. And I guess that would be the closest thing that, you know, we get a bunch of flock of pigeons into your, into your feed. I mean, A, they're going to suck down a ton of your feed and then B expect that number to double, maybe even triple because now they found where you're at. And if you're not shooting those out of your barn, then you're going to have a big problem on your hands, especially if you're a crop or you have an open, uh, open feed like we've got. And so it's you got to stay on top of it, and I got to clear the barn out, and just know that it, they're going to come back just like these pigs. And so that's where my, I guess my initial like mindset has had to change, where it's like, man, I feel like that's a an an ethical down point right there. But at the same time, I'm looking at it that like, well, the ethics here, what is being destroyed? I mean, yeah, property and crops. There's crop insurance. But I can't imagine the nesting birds that have been oh, yeah. just decimated down there or competition for food. And what are the natives having to do to just survive with this hog population now overrunning them, whether it's fawns or whether it's, yeah, poults or whatever it is that uh, happens to be on the ground. You know, your ethics, you know, it's now it's no longer black and white. It's a full on gray spectrum. Yeah, I mean, it is. The, the amount of destruction that they do, like you said, not just to crops, but habitat for other animals, and then even eating other animals, they will eat anything, literally anything. If it, if it can be consumed, they will. I mean, I was, I, I was shown pictures of some guys from Louisiana that were there, and it was um, a fawn being eaten by a sow. And I was like, pigs eat deer? And they're like, absolutely, if they find them and they're not fast enough to get away, they'll eat anything. And it, it's different because when you come from a state that doesn't necessarily have a big pig problem, like you just don't encounter it every day, it's not common. Um, it seems almost evil, the amount of hate that these guys have for the pigs. I mean, they hate them. But then when you're down there for even just a short amount of time and you see how many there are, it it really did open my eyes to it. And at the end of the day, they're helping out hundreds of other species by doing what they're doing. And so even if the meat doesn't go to a good cause, I'm like, at the you, there's not enough places locally that you could bring the food to be eaten. Even if you told people where each pig was dead, like there's not enough people in a community to consume that many pigs. And you can't sell them commercially. And so that kind of just eliminates all possible options as far as consumption goes. You might eat 1% of them throughout the year, but, um, yeah, it's definitely different. And then uh, to even further the ethical issue is any age pig is fair game because within a few months they're breeding. And so I've never killed small, like, young animals in my life. I've never experienced that. And so that was also 
totally new for me. And that was on a different trip that I first experienced it down to Texas on public land. And that's piglets. Like you shoot them all. It doesn't matter big or small, like they all have to go. And, um, so yeah, with, with traveling, with experiencing all of these new things, there's also ethical issues that arise. And I find myself being challenged on my views and, and what I find right or moral in the outdoors. I can definitely, I can definitely see that. And it's at the same time, a suckling pig, man. I don't think you can get any more tender, juicy piece of meat than you can off something that, that young. I don't, but it's terrible to say, but it's at the same time, like, man, you, once you try it, it might, it might change the way you think about things. Oh, it's good. I mean, yeah, we, we ate some of them. Some of them didn't have anything left to eat. Um, but wild pigs, great. I love it. Uh, I, I killed my first wild pig. Jeez. I don't know how many years ago it was in Oklahoma group of guys from church and we smoked that thing after me and a couple buddies and it was some of the best meat I've ever had. I was like, dude, I, th- I think that was the first time I'd ever smoked that large of a chunk of meat. When in the field, accuracy and precision count. That's why we switch our slug guns to rifle barrels, tune our arrows, and use a fish finder on the water. But why should our drive for control end there? The Tappacue line of meat probes gives an instantaneous look at the temperatures of our prized meals, both internal and the cooking chamber. Tappacue uses sturdy hardware made and assembled here in the U.S., along with their user-friendly, sophisticated software that connects to your smart device. Whether it's a traditional corded probe or the new cordless air probes that give you a wealth of freedom where wires would just get in the way. Adding a Tappacue meat probe can significantly help in getting to that medium rare on venison or waterfowl, ensuring your upland bird stays moist, or even charting your long cooks on a smoker. Visit tappacue.com or find the link in the show notes. And use the code HUNT10, all uppercase, at checkout to save 10%. Adding a probe to your kit can make you one tap away from your cue. You were talking, yeah, like at this point now you're consuming wild pork and you're, like you said, you've, you've dove into it and you you enjoy it. You love it. Biggest piece of meat you've ever smoked is a wild hog or at least, a, you know, a haunch of a wild hog here. If I were to dig deeper into this question, um, and I think, I think hunters do, like, again, we were, we were touching on the ethics piece of it, but, but um, what does, what does meat mean to you not just food well i guess yeah is it just food is it just something to nourish your body uh it's got the right amount of you know protein and minerals and stuff that's that's going to keep you going or do you put more weight into the meat you acquire is it for you you know a taken life given life or is that something you're like man that's a lot of hocus pocus and we're just here to get get fueled up no, I mean, uh, over the years, I would, I would say definitely after high school, the, the meat itself and the journey to, um, get meat has become, gosh, it's, there's facets, there's a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual side to it for me. Like every, 
every part of the process, including the consumption of the meat, is just, it's got its own, I guess, lessons and emotions and um, rawness to it. I mean, I, I, I find myself valuing every minute in the outdoors, whether or not I'm bringing home meat, you know, like just being out there, I feel like I'm recharging my batteries. And although physically I might be being drained mentally and emotionally and spiritually, I feel, feel like I'm being filled just being out in creation. And I try to tell people that aside from procreating, this is the most primal thing we can do like this, this goes back to the very beginning. Like as humans, we've been hunting and gathering from the beginning. So the more stuff that we can actually take from the earth and consume, I feel like the better it is for us as a whole. And so, um, the meat itself. Yeah. I, my, my buddy, Sean, he got me into this saying him and his family, they've said it for years and, uh, they'll lay hands on an animal after they shoot it. And I got to experience it for my first time in Colorado with them and they'll put their hands on it as soon as they come up to it and the life is gone. And they just say, thank you and yours for providing for me and mine. And it is that whole, like this animal's life was taken so that we can continue to have life. And it's the connection with the food. I mean, gosh, I feel like we could do five different podcasts on the connection. I feel that I have to meet and to the outdoors. Um, there's no replacing it. There really isn't. And I, my, my daughter, uh, yesterday, I think it was, maybe it was two days ago. I was asking her about different food and where it came from different meats and stuff. And then it turns out that today they actually did that, uh, same thing in school. Well, I was like, do you know where, do you know where hamburger comes from? And she goes from deer. And I was like, that's so like, if you would have asked me that at her age, even recently, I would have just like automatically gone to like cows, you know, like you get beef from cows and you make burger with it. But that's all she's known now is that when we eat meat, when we eat steaks, when we eat burger, it's from deer. When we eat bacon or pork chops or ham, it's from pigs that we had raised or pigs that I shot. And same thing with ducks and geese and pheasant and elk. And uh, it's cool to see that she is growing up understanding that food comes from me and comes from nature instead of from the store. Amen. The That ability, that knowledge of acquiring your own food. You know, we talk about being free here in the United States. We talk about here in America that we have a freedom and there's a lot of different tangents, especially now politically, like, holy smokes, what do you want to, you know, where do you want to go with that? But what a freedom to not have to go and spend your hard-earned money on food, but to go acquire it yourself. Now, honey, we don't need to talk about the bow that I just spent four figures on. <laughs> <But> <laughs> we're not saving money, let's be honest. But at the same time, that same freedom of being able to go chase the animal and be fully involved with bringing home sustenance. And like you, like your daughter, she has a full experience of seeing that happen to know like when I do eat a hamburger, it's not, it doesn't bear worth. Like this is super heavy. Like babe, I'm, 
I'm super happy that I got this, but at the same time, this animal had to die. And that's a lesson that even as an educator, like how many chances do I have a chance to like interject that? Not very many, but at the same time, like even for my own boys, like whether it's from our farm to know that like there's a, there's a weight that goes with that. There's a process that has to go through with this and to expose them to that. I think that's going to be, I think that's going to be a big turning point if we're going to be able to continue to hunt and fish and enjoy the outdoors here in our nation, as much as we want to say that it's not political. I mean, if you happen to jump on the Meat Eater podcast and listen to Nugent and uh, Ranella go back and forth, everything about what we do is political. And if we're going to continue to have the beautiful rights that we have as hunters and as anglers and as foragers, we're going to have to be involved. We're going to have to be engaged. Americans are going to have to see hunting and fishing as a way of sustenance. Yeah, we put them on the wall because we enjoy them, but it might have to be our plates that we end up showing the world first to be like, listen, this this is why we do this. Yeah, and uh, I found it very interesting. People who may have been closed off to the idea of hunting or maybe not necessarily to the idea of it, but doing it themselves. Um, I was actually getting contacted by people during the pandemic where it's just like, I I'm realizing that I can't always rely or, you know, one, one change in society could mean that I don't have food and my family doesn't have food. Like, could you teach me? I mean, I'm talking like the city, the most city people you can imagine are going, Holy cow. Like I remember the shelves were bare. And I was going, what are we going to do? You couldn't find meat or dairy for months in some places. And here I am like, I'm doing great. I don't like what pandemic. I don't even know what you're talking about, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think that probably actually helped uh, hunting as a whole and helped people really understand that you can have more of a say in where your food comes from than just paying cash to a teller at the grocery store. And, um, I see it, especially like with the hipsters. I know you and I are both kind of like, uh, don't call me a hipster. Don't call me a millennial (laughs) whatever. Um, but really there, there is this sense of curiosity from them, from this generation, I feel like of being more connected with the food that they consume and, not only the food, but the beer that they brew. I mean, I know more people who brew their own beer now than I think were around in this country 30 years ago. Um, There's just something about being more connected, being more intentional, and being less of just a consumer, I guess. Do you process your own animals, or are you still having to find a processor and create that relationship with someone who can who you can trust. Where are you on on that journey? So it's it's a little bit of each. Um, you know, typically close to home, uh, I'm processing the majority of it. Um, with deer, I was doing it myself for a long time, um, but I just have terrible luck with processor or with meat grinders apparently. And they betray me, and then I end up with metal shavings in the burger, and um, my wife doesn't care for that as much. Um, 
And so, yeah, I was doing that for a long time. Uh, the last place that we lived, we had chickens and pigs. And so we were processing all of that. Um, if I'm traveling, typically I'm not doing it. Um, depending on the game animal, depending on where I'm staying and how much time I have there, I should stay. Uh, I know with elk camp, my full intention starting elk hunting in Colorado is to process my own meat. Um, but with the group that I hunt with, we share everything. So like, no matter if you shot, shot it or not, um, everyone gets an equal cut, uh, of the meat. And so that's just, that helps us all be a team, work as a team, lend a hand. If somebody needs a pack out from five miles in, um, and with that, they used to all get together and process the meat after elk camp. Um, and then the host would find that by the end of the night, there might be two out of the 20 people that were supposed to be there and there's still a full elk left to do with just two people. And so, um, before I ever joined that crew, they started taking it to a processor and they're just like, it's easier to do it that way. It makes more sense, but I love having the knowledge should I ever need to and couldn't rely on somebody else. Yeah. Being away from home, not having your setup, the, what you're comfortable with, and just being able to find a, a processor that, you know, a lot of people can, you know, it's funny because here in Michigan, all of a sudden, like, oh, probably third week in September, you start seeing flyers and you start seeing uh, business cards of like little pop-up um butchers and and cutters deer processors and they do they get booked up and booked up for one year and then you ask so hey how was that uh that jnh guy over in the you know the the old uh old floral shop like ah yeah that guy was terrible like <laughs> not go, not going back again and then it's you know the next year he's he's not there again you know and but then yeah someone new is in and so it's like man do i do I trust them with that? But at the same time, there's the names that you see every year and the setups and the processors that are are ones that you can trust and you can go and and talk and you know talk to them, see their process, and they're they're more than happy to have you on. But I'm sure once they become trusted, once they become a valued part of the process, it's now is you just got to be the first one to get an animal down because otherwise, yeah, you're not going to get it in. It's going to be it'll be last, and hopefully it uh, hopefully it stays cold that night. Yeah. Well, we, we ran into the lack of processor issue. I go up to Wisconsin every year for rifle season and we ran into that because I don't know all of the ins and outs of it, but from what I've gathered is the DNR is putting more regulations on processors and it's making it harder, making it harder for them to, uh, make a living doing it. And so I, I notice in a one year span from the 2020 season to the 2021 season, it was like, I would say 50% of the processors that I was used to up there were shut down and they just weren't even operating anymore or they had sold to somebody else because they didn't want to deal with the headache. And then there were also a lot of little mom and pop deals that were popping up where it's like, Hey, my buddy started processing, like take it over to him for 70 bucks or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, it, it definitely makes it difficult because, you know, you have the people that you know and you trust and you're like, man, I want I want venison summer sausage and you make really good jalapeno cheddar stuff. And if you trust just anybody to jalapeno cheddar summer sausage, 
you could be in a lot of trouble for a long time. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely see that. Like having somebody that you trust to handle the meat, to have the respect of it, and then also everyone's worried about not getting their own deer back. You know, it's like, who who else's deer did I just get? You know, was was there? Did they test for CWD? Because um, I know mine was clean. Yep, it's a because it's behind a closed door because it's not you know you weren't there to do it or you're there to see it. There's this this mystery to it, and then yeah, when something is a little bit off, oh man, that's uh. He gave me bad burger from the the other guy, or my my deer was bigger than this. I swear, yeah. I should have way more meat than what I got back, and I I swear he kept one of my back straps. I know it. He does that. He keeps a back strap. <laughs> That's just his toll. That's his deer toll for coming through his plant. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, Dan, we have come down to the crescendo of our show here. And that is the two-dish breakdown. This is where I give you two scenarios. And you have to come back with me on what you're going to be making. Now, the criteria here is going to be stuck to wild game or free-range game. Um, You get to kind of expand a little bit on it. These are open-ended questions. But at the same time, it's got to stick well within something that you chase and hunt. You think you're up for the challenge? I think so. All right. This one's kind of a softball because I want I want one meal that you feel confident that in making and serving to friends and family who are visiting. What's one meal that you are so spot on with that you make it for your friends and family? Shredded venison quesadillas. Boom. That is mic drop. <laughs> you yeah, were quick on that. that. <laughs> oh man, my I mean, my wife, I'm going to give her a lot of credit because anything that I know how to cook, it's because she figured it out. And I I tip that's her domain. I stay out of the kitchen even when I try to help, she'll just kind of all of a sudden stop and look at me and I know that means you're annoying me. This is my space. Leave me alone. You're messing everything up. But shredded venison quesadillas, I mean, when you put something in a crock pot, you can't fully mess it up ever, I feel like. And then to pull it out and just shred it and then put whatever you want. If you're a guacamole person, throw some of that in the quesadilla. If you like onions and peppers that are super hot stuff, put that in. But for me, I keep it pretty simple. The one thing that I never waver on as far as an ingredient goes is corn. Like, I will always put corn in it. And something about that little pop and a little bit of sweetness, oh, man, it it sets the whole thing off. So, And I need to also say, I do this as a breakfast quesadilla. And so to wake up in the morning and have, yeah, that is, gosh, I love that meal so much. And it's easy. Anybody can make it. Oh, man, what a great way to use the parts that need to be braised, you're throwing the neck in, you're throwing the shanks in, shoulders getting parted out and then dropped into that crock pot. And like you said, you can't mix up, mix, mess it up. It is a perfect time machine to delicious from something oh, yeah. that otherwise you would struggle with in trying to do a low and slow on it uh, otherwise. I like that. That's one that definitely, oh, yeah, any friend and family would pick that up, even folks that aren't even that 
excited about wild game because it's shredded in there. It's just delicious. You add yep. a little salsa on there, they ain't going to oh, turn man. that down. You, I'm telling you, you can go a thousand different ways with it too. Like, I mean, really, if you if you go with any Mexican food, it's all tortilla, cheese, beans, meat, and something else. And then you just add everything else in, and they just call it different things, whether it's wrapped up, folded up, sandwiched in between two of them. I mean, it's all the same. You can go any direction with it you want. Excellent, excellent. Hey, good shot. I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you a triple on that one. That was a good one. I did not expect the quesadilla. You nice. you caught me over the fence there. Here's the next one. This one's gonna be a little bit of a curveball. Oh, where am I at? Yeah, this one's a curveball. This is gonna be real personal because I talked to some folks and they are very very upset with you being in that helicopter and shooting pigs. In fact, to the point where you have, we've already picked your firing squad day. They're going to shoot you down from a helicopter. But the night before. How many before, shots did they get? <laughs> <laughs> depends on how fast you are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, the night before, they're going to let you choose your last meal request. As your last meal on earth. What would it be? Sicking with game that I've pursued, processed, and eaten, I would have to say a moose heart and tongue combination. That, to this day, is probably the best meat I've ever eaten. And it could be the fact that we spent the whole day uh, packing it out and you know everything's good when you're camping or better when you're camping but that was i think the first time i had ever had tongue and definitely the first time i had ever had any type of moose meat but man that moose heart and tongue was phenomenal and i would give anything for it again of course knowing enough people that draw moose tags like it might be 20 years before i get to experience (laughs) that meal again so that would probably be my final Talk to me on that preparation. How you're camping. Is it literally just thin sliced, a little bit of oil, a little bit of salt, a little bit of pepper, just Man, straight it, up? Yeah, it, it pretty much was. And the tongue especially, I was like, man, am I really going to eat a moose tongue? Like, this seems odd. But you do. I mean, you cut the taste buds off and stuff like that. But, I mean, you can really just cook the whole thing. Um, I've heard of people boiling the full tongue and then searing it. Um, I, I haven't branched out a whole lot from there. And part of me, I know you can buy like beef tongue and stuff like that, but part of me doesn't want to, I guess, um, change, change my perception of what tongue tastes like by going to like something I buy at the store. I think I'd rather keep it all wild. Um, but yeah, it, same type of deal. You can cook tongue and heart from what I understand, just about any way you can cook steak. So, Amen. Amen. Hey, that's a home run there. I think I think they're gonna they're gonna give you a good lead. They're gonna let you feel confident, and hopefully they'll they'll put you down quick. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I'm gonna add one thing to it, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, there is a meal that I think I would rather face the firing squad than eat again, and that was mountain goat. 
I don't know if it was just, I mean, we worked hard for that. So if, if working hard equals greater flavor, then that should have been my favorite meal ever because that's the hardest I've ever worked for an animal. But that just was not good tasting at all. And maybe somebody's got a recipe for it, but I, I actually quit putting in for mountain goat preference points just because I didn't like it that much. And I said, I'm not going to come back here and shoot one of my own if I'm not going to eat it. And it was that terrible to eat. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You know what? We're not done. We're going to, we're going to open this up because I wanted to talk to you a little bit about gamey and how I think that is a worse swear word than any of the other four letters. <laughs> the other four letter ones, I can let those rip all day, but gamey, if, if you're going to pursue this animal, you're going to kill this animal, well, step up, be a man, eat the animal. And yeah. I personally haven't come across something that, you know, I've, I've been able to stomach whatever it is. And I'm sure there's things that I'm like, well, if I had to scale it, I probably wouldn't put a ton of effort in just because I wasn't that that impressed with its taste. But that was the whole thing that I was thinking about, too, is that it's like, is it is it we as a nation and we as people of pretty much first, where we are the first world, are our palates so finite that if we get a couple degrees off of domesticated, we're like, ew? Because here that mountain goat lives at super high elevation. It, it grazes on probably some of the woodiest, toughest grasses that are up there. Its diet, I guess, is not picturesque. Eeks a living where other things can't. I mean, hell, hell, a predator trying to get to these things ends up putting its own life at peril. And here, these things yeah. make a living up there. That's going to reflect into what its flesh is going to be like. So, when you were digging into that mountain goat, describe describe a little bit. You told me it was off putting. Describe what was going on with that. Like, give me some of the flavor tones of it. Oh. There's there's only one flavor tone that comes up when I think about it, and if you have ever gut-shotted deer or accidentally cut the guts on a deer while quartering it or while, while gutting it out, that smell is what it tasted like. And I don't know, I don't know why. You know, there's a lot of things that could have played into it. I've heard from multiple people that goat just typically isn't great anyways, um, but you know, it, it was a tough animal. I was with my buddy, Sean, for every shot that he put into this thing. And I give that animal credit as the toughest animal I've ever seen, um, to go down. And we're not talking like bad shots, like in the leg here, in the shoulder there. We're, we're talking multiple rounds into the chest cavity and it just, didn't want to go down. So it could have been the adrenaline, the testosterone, whatever flowing through it before it died. Um, but I'll never forget the flavor. I mean, it just really, there was something that I was like, I, if this is what they taste like, I don't want to do it again. And, um, you know, credit to Sean, he ate every bit of it. And, you know, he, he said it, he's like, man, this, it's unfortunate that like, I absolutely have to eat this. Like, this is not one of those animals that you're going to get away with wasting anything on as far as conservation uh, departments are concerned. 
but he did. He's like, dude, I'm going to eat every bit of it. I shot it. It's going in my freezer. And, uh, but yeah, he was like, this is, this is tough. This is a tough one to swallow. So I don't know. Like I said, I, maybe someone's like, Hey, I know how to cook goat or how to cook mountain goat. And they might, but there was something about that one that just was very unpleasant so much so that I took it off of my list of things I want to hunt. Wow. Hey, cheers to Sean doing his due diligence. How many goat tacos did he have? Oh <laughs> We're my We're going to go back dude. to, you can mask everything with Tex-Mex. <laughs> oh yeah, for real. He was doing like goat chili probably. And he was putting like an ounce of goat meat in each pot of chili. Um, that's probably what I would have gone or that's how I would have gone about it. But no, I mean, we had, we had surf and turf up there. We had mountain goat and, and brook trout. And that was amazing. That tasted great. But, um, yeah, at that point I kind of wish like, I think at 70, they say once you hit 70 years old, you lose 70% of your taste buds by that point in your life. And I was like, I, I could go for being 90 right now as I was eating that. So, <laughs> Well, Dan, this has just been a great hour to get a chance to just talk with you, get to know more about you. Um, where can my listeners find out more about you? We know you're on uh, Sportsman's, formerly known as Sportsman's Nation. Um, where can we find your podcasts? Where can we find you on social media? Man, if you look up the Nomadic Outdoorsman or the Western Rookie, just about anywhere you can get podcasts, you'll find it. If you want to check out social media, it is the same thing. No spaces, no um, underscores, nothing. It's just the Western Rookie and the Nomadic Outdoorsman, all one word on each of those for Instagram and TikTok. I do pride myself on making very fun, relatable content, especially if you are a hunter who's married or you are married to a hunter. Um, we, we try to hit that topic pretty well. So um yeah i'd appreciate the listens the follow and it's always good time chatting with fellow sportsmen's nationese empires <laughs> i don't know what to call it now um uh but yeah thanks for having me on awesome well danny we're gonna hold you on here for just a second don't go anywhere i'm gonna send the listeners on out folks i hope you enjoyed this conversation like we got a chance to just not we just open up and to think man Maybe there's something outside of our little wheelhouse that we have picked out things to be awesome, and maybe there's more awesome over the horizon that we just haven't experienced. If you've got that chance, go ahead and do that. I mean, nothing sounds more fun than flying in a helicopter, shooting at feral hogs, and say that you're doing it for the betterment of the, the environment. I mean, that sounds like it's right up our alley. But then even to take that further and to you know find things that really test our boundaries when it comes to like why do we eat meat and is there a purpose to us hunting is it going to be something that's going to be sustainable and can we share our lifestyle with folks who don't understand that but whether if it's you're expanding your boundaries and wanting to chase after mountain goat or whether it's you want to stay close to home on the old 40 and just chase after that uh that big buck you've been watching whichever that scenario is you should always keep their knife sharp.